welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. wide shut strange title that was the first thing that struck me when i saw the trailers in 99 i was trying to figure out shortly before talking to you what i thought it meant and i didn't come up with anything so i'm curious what you thought there's a story behind that title actually the uh, kubrick's screenwriter on this film which was his last film released in 1999 that's 20 years ago now strangely was frederick Raphael. he's a i think he's a british screenwriter and no, no, he's American. I think he's American. Yeah. He, so Kubrick hired him to write the screenplay. And then Frederick Raphael wrote a kind of tell-all memoir of the experience, which Kubrick's wife, because he published it after uh, Kubrick passed away, and P- Kubrick's wife called it a nasty bit of grave dancing, this book. Um, huh. and, uh, and there's a scene in it, or he remembers the moment where Kubrick sent him the title by fax. Frederick Raphael didn't like that title at all. He thought it was crass. I mean, what does it mean? It, eyes wide shut. So your eyes are open, but you're not seeing. And I think that really tells us one of the key themes of, of this film. I watched it again last night. I've seen this film probably about 12 times. You've seen it one time so one far? One time. Yeah. So that's good. We get that And I dynamic. only finished, I'm going to confess, I only finished watching it like a minute or two before we started recording. Oh, <laughs> I was going to finish watching it last night, but then I fell asleep. Normally, I would like to watch a film and let it kind of sit and ferment in my subconscious. Uh, But I don't have that luxury. So this is going to be like, you know, when you make that fancy way of making tea. What is it called? Gung Fu, where you have multiple infusions. This is the first infusion. Right. So why did we pick this You can So you can be the guide. You can be the Virgil to my Dante. Right. That's like the most pretentious thing I've said all week. <laughs> I'll start by uh, just summarizing the film very quickly. It's a very simple story. Tom Cruise plays Bill Harford, who's a doctor in Manhattan in turn of the century New York, 1999. His wife is played by Nicole Kidman, who was his real life wife. And she plays Alice Harford. And she's a, an unemployed gallery manager. So they they live a pretty like a pretty, privileged pretty, life. Yeah, a pretty privileged life. There's this beautiful apartment near Central Park. Bill Harford seems to his clientele seems to be comprised of very very wealthy people. He does house calls to them and he so he seems to be making quite quite a bit of money. And then they go to this party thrown by a, evidently some kind of billionaire named uh, Ziegler in the film played by Sidney Pollack and they are separated, and then they each engage in a very intense flirtation. Bill Harford with two models who kind of accost him and walk him about the mansion, taking him somewhere. They tell him they're going to where the rainbow ends. And um, the obvious meaning is that they're going to find some quiet place to have sex. Meanwhile, Alice Harford is uh, approached by a very Luciferian Eastern European cosmopolitan dude who Mm -hmm. uh, tries to seduce her. So nothing really happens, but afterwards they have a conversation about infidelity and about female psychology and about sex. And during this conversation, Alice confesses that she once considered throwing her whole life away to spend one night with this perfect stranger they saw when they were on a family vacation in Cape Cod. This basically just sends uh, Bill Harford like and spiraling and he, he gets a house call at that point because one of his patients died and he goes out and he, he begins this kind of night sea journey where he's presented with scenario after scenario in which women offer themselves to him and then he but he can't consummate he can't actually go through with it it's almost one of those sex like those erotic dreams where you keep getting close to like doing it but then something always happens and you get i don't know if you've <laughs> ever had those but yeah sure um, <laughs> and this goes on for a while but 
he follows this trail of breadcrumbs, so to speak, to this really strange place. He ends up in this mansion where this masked orgy is taking place. I mean, calling it a mansion isn't even do it justice. Castle. Palace, yeah. To a palace where this masked orgy is taking place, which is also a kind of black mask kind of affair. Mm. Obviously attended by extremely wealthy people. People to whom Bill Harford's very privileged life would seem like... Bug-like in its insignificance. Exactly. And um, he gets caught when he's there. He's singled out and he's told to remove his mask. And then he's warned not to mention this to anybody. And he leaves. And then, and then he starts to get a little paranoid for various reasons. But the point is that at that point, he's seen something he shouldn't have seen. And the rest of the film is him kind of like... It's kind of all that unraveling. In the end, he's saved almost in a deus ex machina way by his friend Ziggler, the billionaire, who kind of like bails him out. And uh, he returns to his wife. He confesses everything. They make up. And there's, you know, one of the... Well, I mean, it's not true that Kubrick didn't have happy endings because he often did. But... Um, this film actually has a pretty unequivocally happy ending. Yeah. Unequivocally, possibly, su- po- yeah. possibly surprising. Unequivocally on the surface. <laughs> Um, but what is being denied in that reconciliation at the end is interesting because they're deciding to pretend that a whole lot of truths are not true, except for one. They come to terms with the fact that even though they're married, even though they had all these illusions about true love and giving themselves one to the other and all that, they have to recognize that they are animals and that they have erotic desires. So there's this easy interpretation, which is like kind of like at the marital level, they, they work things out and they become conscious or awake, as Alice says. But on another level, what was exposed about the nature of society and the nature of civilization in the course of this journey, because while Bill Harford has his journey in the world, Alice Harford has a series of dreams. She has an inner journey that she reports to him. She reports these strange dreams to him. What's revealed about the psyche and about the cosmos, I would argue, in the course of the story, makes their little reconciliation at the end of kind of like ironic meh. Well, I agree that it's ironic. I don't know if it's meh. Because I think, I wish I could remember the exact line they exchange. But there's a mutual decision to treat, you know, what we call real life, real life experience and dream experience as being in some ways equivalent or not equivalent. They're not the same, but they're not accepting the idea that something that happens in a dream only happens in a dream, that it is somehow insignificant or hived off from from so-called real life. But then at the same time, what happens in real life is not so categorically different from a dream either. And there's a sort of sense in which they come to that gnosis. I mean, it's not the wrong word to apply to this. But then there also is a strong sort of sense. Okay, so what's the very last word of the screenplay is fuck. That's Alice saying something like, there's something we need to do. And Bill's like, what? And she's like, fuck. And at first that sort of jangled on my ear. It's a little crude. I mean, God knows it's like my favorite word. I say it a million times every episode. (laughs) But it seems like a brutishly strong brushstroke in a film that has consisted of just the daintiest of strokes, right? The, The most delicate of touches. But that's kind of an interesting note to leave things on because what they're not saying 100%, well, let's treat it all, you know, all is a dream. So let's just sort of bracket that off and forget about it and go on with their lives. That's not quite it. That's kind of it. There's an acknowledgement of like, okay, if you want to go into the unsublimated raw, you know, which is what Bill does right. in his nighttime peregrinations. I love that word, peregrinations. Um, Bing, you get a point for that. Let the listeners in behind the curtain. I just draw up lists of fancy words. Yeah. Before every episode, make sure that I use them. So. He, he always has his, his thesaurus out. Yeah, you know, when he goes on his nighttime peregrinations, it's not that he's entirely in the depths. It's like he goes down into the depths in a bathysphere because he never, never really does anything. He visits a prostitute, but he's interrupted by a call from his wife, and that seems to recall him if not to his duties, at least to reality, it pulls him out of a dream, a walking dream that he's having. 
And then, you know, when he's at this strange palace watching these masked and robed sex rituals taking place, he's an observer. He's walking through and looking at all of this stuff. He never participates. But this is closer to the unsublimated raw. Right. And Alice also, in her dreams, is close to the unsublimated raw in a different way. She's not physically present, but in this virtual space of her dream, she actually consummates sex in a way that Bill doesn't. But in each case, they've done some bathysphere diving, and they've come up to the surface, and they're, as it were, comparing notes. And I think that the facile interpretation would be to say, well, that was a fun little adventure, and we're going to let the depths be the depths. We're going to dwell on the surface and go on with our marriage. But, you know, because we took that trip, we've gotten a little sexed up. We're a little bit uh, more erotically charged, so let's go have some fun. That is not, I think, what really is happening. What I think is actually happening is that there is... Uh, maybe I'm just going to say the same thing using different words though, now that I'm thinking of it. Maybe there's a pragmatic similarity to what I just said I don't think is happening and what I'm about to say I do think is happening, which is that they have to make a choice for civilization, for the entire apparatus of civilization and all of its civilized restraints and repressions and hypocrisies, its masks. And yet they have been transformed. They've undergone an initiatory experience and they cannot help but go forward in their lives changed and responding to one another now in a somewhat different way. The sex in their life is always going to be shadowed by or colored by this initiatory experience, which to me is a positive thing. There's no going back to the status quo ante. But the new arrangement, which we see the very first suggestion of, is something that is necessarily affected by everything that's happened in the film. In other words, this is not an equivalent of the shitty thing that happens at the end of Wizard of Oz, which to me is the greatest betrayal in all of film, is when Dorothy wakes up. It's not in Frank L. Baum's book, The Wizard of Oz, by the way. He never takes back that world, but the film inexcusably, unforgivably, takes it all back. And... Kubrick does not do that. He doesn't say, like, well, it was all kind of a dream. Well, actually, he does sort of say it was all a dream. But he's, but then Tom Cruise but do we says, know what? But do we know what that means? No, but and Tom, Tom Cruise makes it very clear. He, the, 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 the words exchanged at the end are very important. Um, Alice says, we're awake now, and we know that the reality of one night, let alone of a whole lifetime, can never be the whole truth. And he mm. replies, and no dream is ever just a dream. Mm. That's, that's a fantastic speculative realist claim. Because mm. what it says is that you're never getting the full view of things. So even after watching this film, you don't like understand. Because there, the, the film has prompted a lot of conspiracy theory that Kubrick was oh, actually really? exposing the Illuminati. What a surprise. <laughs> He's exposing the <laughs> Illuminati and all that. But oh, and I, don't th I think that's half the truth. Oh, I think that's half so the truth. So stupid. But Fucking hate that shit. No, 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 but, but I, I don't Illuminati believe... paranoia is so stupid. It is, it is, but it has metaphorical value. Uh-huh. I mean, in 1999, if you were to say, talk about the Illuminati, I remember, I had friends who were into this stuff, and they sounded ridiculous. But today, you can see how they were using metaphors that they thought literally applied to describe a real situation, which is amply evident now. I mean, if I told you there are cabals of extremely wealthy people steering democracies, I mean, who would deny that today? It's yeah. like, it's obvious, but it wasn't obvious back then. It wasn't. People laughed at people who said that. That's a good point. Um, it's funny to watch the film with 20 years, you know, retrospect, because the world has changed a lot since this film was, was released. Yeah, and I true. think in a, in a sense, this film is about that change. But I agree with you that Illuminati theorists are full of shit because they only get half the story and they take that half literally. In fact, what I mean is they take the symbol literally, therefore they only get half the symbol. That's what happens mm. when you literalize a symbol. If you look at a symbol and you allow it to be a symbol, you see that it is always innately, inextricably ambivalent. 
that it's always mm. it has two sides symbol comes from a greek term which referred to like a seal you break in half and you give one half to a messenger right and ah, you send the other okay. and then when the seals reunited you have the full you know, the, the the idea being like laura that, palmer's necklace exactly which is like a symbol on many levels yeah <laughs> i never knew that or so, thought about it that's really cool yeah um so a, a symbol is always half of something. It's always the part of something that's peeking out that you can see, but that because of the way you see it, you know there's more to it. That's the difference between a symbol and a sign. And uh, the conspiracy theorists are people who see, for example, uh, what's that? The, uh, the guy, the reptilians. So he argues that the Queen of England is a reptile. And that the English, the British royal family are actually reptilian creatures. And he has like interviewed people who've seen them transform from reptilian to humanoid forms. Well, that's complete bullshit on one level. On another level, to say that in order to enjoy a certain level of wealth in this world without realizing that, you, that every penny you make, you've taken from <laughs> someone else, it right. requires a kind of reptilian frigidity morally. Even if it's not enacted in your actual life, on some level, the metaphor is not without value, is all I'm saying. Right. But, but, but in being literalized, it becomes absolute nonsense. You know, I just had a thought. What you were just saying about the symbol, I was just recently reviewing our Genja Cohen episode. I listened to a little bit of it because I wanted to check something. And it reminded me, there's a line from Genja Cohen that we spend a lot of time on when one side is illuminated the other is dark yeah and it didn't occur to me me or you at the time to say it but that is a wonderful expression also for what you're saying about the symbol when yeah. one side is illuminated the other is dark yes that's true of all signs and all things right like whichever side of the symbol you're on there's there's a dark side of it yes dogen would argue that all things are illuminated on one side and, and then therefore dark on the other, right? But a symbol is a thing that shows you its luminous side and shows you its dark side. Without you seeing what the dark side is, it just shows you that it has a oh, dark that's side. Oh, that's interesting. You know what that's like? What? There's a the idea that in witch doctoring, the doctor will say, well, the problem with you is that you have worms in your belly and I need to suck out the worms and they'll you know, put their mouth to the person's belly and make sucking gestures with their face and start spitting out worms. And this is generally known to be legerdemain. There's all kinds of techniques that shamans pass along for how you can, you know, palm little items that you want to then pretend that you've taken out of a patient's uh, abdomen or whatever. But what's interesting about this is the technique is not merely concealment. Right? It's not the perfect performance. So like you have no idea that this thing is coming from the witch doctor rather than the patient's body. It is the concealment, but also the skillful and selective revelation of the concealment. Uh-huh. So there's layers to this shit. And that's interesting to me because the conventional idea of any kind of magical healing is that, that it's just... 100% fraud perpetrated by a malefactor on a victim. But the point is to understand the truth of what Homer Simpson says in one episode of The Simpsons. It takes two to lie, one to lie and one to listen. Yeah. And I find it very interesting that in order for that client relationship to obtain, there has to be the light side and the dark side the apparent, I sucked some worms out of your belly, and the hidden, which is I actually palmed those worms before we even started, but that you also have to make sure that the dark side is visible as well. Yes. Not the content of the dark side, just that there is that dark side. Yeah, yeah. That I think that's key, and I, it's such a good example because that's what I mean when, I'm, when I, I've said a few times, when I say that real art is without judgment, what I mean is that it doesn't pretend to get the whole sign. It always shows you its dark side. Kubrick is a master of this. He's constantly making little ironic jokes in this film that are winkingly reminding you that you're watching a film. Right. So the film points to its own artifice, but in doing so, elevates itself out of the miasma of opinion 
where this is this artist's opinion. It becomes something more. It's conscious of itself, so it becomes a symbol. It's one of the techniques you use to create a symbol. So, for example, when uh, Bill Harford goes to that Viennese cafe in the second half of the film and he's trying to get away from these people following him, because this is a very strange, it is, in a sense, a kind of conspiracy film. Uh, so he's hiding out in this cafe and he just grabbed a newspaper on his way in and he and he, he opens it up and the headline on the, the front page is lucky to be alive. And he's yeah, you know, just like these little jokes or right over in the Sonata Cafe, like the the cafe where um, Bill meets his friend, the jazz pianist who will take him to the, the mansion or tell him how to get there for the orgy. Uh, when he goes there, there's a sign over the bar that says the customer is always wrong. Um, which <laughs> also points. I didn't to, notice that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I actually, I didn't notice it either. I read that in an article, so I hope it's true. But, um, this blurring of the line between artistry and artifice between reality and dream is one of the things that makes Kubrick, I think such a monumentally gifted filmmaker. He would put his stories through such a grinder of analysis before he made the films. He would just go over and over again, peeling away any type of trope, any easy trope. Or if he left a trope in, if he left a cliche in, he would frame it in such a way that the cliche was being observed as such. Like it wasn't just being put out there or performed. It was being looked at. Um, that his films become very strange and dreamlike. There's a quote from an interview he gave I'll read it out. Um, the representation of reality has no bite, he said. It does not transcend. Nowadays, I'm more interested in taking up a fantastic and improbable story. I always enjoyed representing a slightly surreal situation in a realistic way. I've always had a penchant for fairy tales, myths, and magical stories. These seem to me to come closer to our present-day experience of reality than realistic stories, which are basically just as stylized. So, hmm. what he's saying is that what we consider realism is always a kind of after-the-fact thing, right? You look at something, is this realistic? Oh, yeah, this is the way people actually talk. But if you're to do that on a, in a film, it looks actually really false and stylized. Whereas if you, if you direct your film more like a dream, it starts to feel more like reality. Not how reality feels to us in our thoughts, but how reality feels in the moment. There's a kind of somnambulism to Kubrick's world that I think really does get at what it is like to be human. I think most of the time we're kind of in a kind of dream state. Driving a car on the highway, you need to be in a kind of somnambulistic state. You can't be fully aware of what's going on because you'd be shitting bricks and <laughs> you'd stop. That's true. That's um, true. There's so many things we do that we're just completely determined by the system of, of forces that we're caught up in. And that's what determines our behavior. That's what determines how we speak, what we say. And I think Kubrick was very interested in that. And I think Eyes Wide Shut is probably his most penetrating analysis or observation of that reality, of that somnambulistic reality that is closer to real life than any type of realistic, quote unquote, representation of how people actually are. Something that I find interesting about this film, and this relates perhaps to some extent with the paranoid conspiracy theories that it has engendered, the atmosphere of conspiracy and pareidolia that hangs over all of the interpretations in Room 237, the Rodney Asher documentary that we talked about at length in our episode on the weird films of Rodney Asher. One great advantage about coming to Eyes Wide Shut as a noob, never having seen it before, where the last time I thought about Kubrick was in the context of Room 237, is that as I'm watching this film, I am looking at it with the eyes of conspiracy. Okay, one 
interesting fact about it is that most of the street scenes are shot on a on a lot. Yeah. Which was increasingly unusual at the time this film was made. Kubrick was one of the few directors to really go to the mat for having backlot style shoots. And that's my understanding. It's true. It's it's very true. Yeah, the only exception is Clockwork Orange, which he shot on location to make yeah. a point, just to, to kind of win a bet almost. But uh, all of his films, uh, he, he loved that, the level of control that a backlot afforded you, right? But And this is the thing. What it means is you're watching things happening in the streets of Greenwich Village. For example, this long paranoid sequence, you've already described it, where Bill's walking through the mostly deserted streets of his neighborhood at night and is pretty sure he's being followed by a tall, bald guy in a tan trench coat and eventually ducks into this cafe where he sees the newspaper that informs him of the death of somebody that we, we've already encountered in this film. When you're, he's walking through all of the streets, all of that is constructed, which means everything that is in that world is there because somebody willed it to be there. Now, perhaps this is true of street environments generally. Every object that you see in any given street, there's a story as to why it's there. But the story for every single object in a Stanley Kubrick backlog is the same which is it's there because Stanley Kubrick put it there or asked for it to be put there. I'm sure there's still room for accident. I'm sure that some of the things that people make much of in Room 237 really are just continuity errors, like the chair that appears and then disappears in the same scene. Yeah. But nevertheless, the point is that you are, as a viewer, in a world where everything is intended. And that is the world of magic, and it's the world of conspiracy theory. In the conspiracy theory world, everything has a story. And through a practice of interpretation, you can unravel all the stories and get to the source. And the thing is that knowing what we know about Kubrick's working methods, we know that that is actually literally true when we're watching a Kubrick film. So the newspaper that Bill holds when he's in that cafe... And the cover says, lucky to be alive. And as you say, that's a great ironic little wink. But then when he opens it up, he sees a news story with the headline, ex-beauty queen in hotel drugs overdose. When he first sees it, it's in the newspaper. Then he tears off the story, puts it in his pocket, and then later uh, shows it to... Ziegler. Yeah. Ziegler. And he is questioning Ziegler about whether this woman's death has anything to do with the events of the night before. And I took a screenshot of this torn piece of paper. And again, this thing was made at Kubrick's behest, right? Every word on this piece of paper that we see only for a second, every word on that piece of paper exists for a reason. Yeah. And so I'm looking at it, I'm, and I'm going to post this on the you know, Weird Studies Twitter feed when we publish this episode. There's a little, like a story that would be set off in a little inset box, like it would be a, like a letter to the editor. And it's all been torn off. And the only words that are clearly visible are, she said, have violence, dot, 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 mental violence. Then on the right hand or the left hand column, it's part of a story about somebody who pretended he had a gun in order to hold up a bank and pretended to hold somebody hostage. And the whole situation was later resolved peacefully. Now, I can't say off the top of my head what that might mean. But knowing, as I do, there's nothing in this frame that exists by accident. I am automatically going to start looking for patterns, correspondences, clues, and then when you read the actual story, Ex-Beauty Queen and Hotel Drugs Overdose, which we get almost all of, there are two notable mistakes where a line repeats. Yeah, yeah. I know the, I've, I've sunk into the to those depths as well of like reading this article in the past. And, so, it's, and, and I'm yeah. sure that there are websites, I'm sure there's a whole subreddit full of conjectures just about this one shot, right? And I'm just coming to it as in a, a naive state. This is a new film to me. But having just watched Room 237 and seen the feverish hermeneutic practice of people who really get into this, 
it's a funny thing about conspiracy and paranoia. It's catching. If one person starts thinking that way, it's almost like you start vibrating in sympathy. So now I feel like Bill does, walking through this world of alien signs, all of which are there for some kind of reason. I don't know anything except that they're there for a reason, but I don't know what the reason is. Yeah, It's yeah. dark, but it's darkness revealed. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And that's the thing that is pulling me into this film in a much more hardcore way than almost any other film would. Let's look at those lines that are repeated in the article and see what we can make of them. Because I'll, I'll just mention something. If you notice, the script is written in such a way that on multiple occasions in the film, Bill or other characters repeat the last lines they've heard. Like this is something that recurs throughout the movie. So for instance, the sex worker on the street, will she says something like, would you like to come inside? And he says, would I like to come inside? And oh, this yeah. is done constantly through the movie. You never see this in screenwriting. This is a total waste of words when you're writing a script. You don't have characters repeat what the other person said, unless it's for really specific dramatic effect. But he does it constantly in the script. It's very strange. So I've always associated that repetitiousness in the dialogue with those lines that are repeated in the article. That's how, how I've tried to connect it. Because read the, the lines that are repeated in the article. Okay, the it's the second paragraph. Amanda Curran, 30, was found unconscious in her room at the Florence Hotel by security personnel after her agent asked them to check on her B hyphen. And then we see hotel by security personnel after her. And then after her agent asked them to check on her B hyphen because he'd been unable to reach her by phone. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know what to make of it, but... And also, when we finally find out what's on the other end of the hyphen, B hyphen, cause, cause is misspelled, C-U-A-S-E, instead of C-A-U-S-E. I can't help but think that there's some kind of puzzle there. Well, cause, for one thing, okay, so cracked out theory, I'm pulling this out of my hat, one of the fundamental things that you have to talk about, if we're talking about a, an Illuminati world, a world in which everything exists for a reason, right? we are talking about a world in which causality assumes a very different aspect than it normally does. Causes are very different from how they ordinarily are. There, it's a little bit, the letters are mixed around a little bit. Right. See, when I'm, see where I'm going with I this? I see exactly where you're going. I like it. And, and you know, half the time, it doesn't really matter. At, at this point, it doesn't really matter what Kubrick intended because Kubrick intended only for intention to resonate at every level. Like, so that... The, <laughs> Interesting. What, he, what, he's, what he's intending is a feeling of oppressive secrecy, that there's something going on around you, that you're actually a puppet, that your sexual instincts are just being capitalized or exploited in some weird way that you can't understand for purposes you don't understand by people who make, you know, at the end, it's interesting when uh, Pollock's character, uh, Victor Ziegler at the end says, you don't know who those people were at that party. This guy has a castle in Manhattan, right? Yeah. And he is intimidated by these people. So these are people who make a billionaire look like, like a piker, like a minor, like a minor figure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like a minor courtier, whatever. So, so we're talking about a kind of pyramid of power that goes who knows where, you know. And yeah. and I like the idea that the tip of that is like it just vanishes in the clouds. Right. You can't even see where it goes. You can't see how high up it goes. Yeah. Some kind of non-Euclidean triangle that never ends. <laughs> you know, it just yeah. keeps going up. Um, but but I think that's more the intention than communicating any specific message to us, which is what the conspiracy theorists are constantly looking for in Kubrick. Did he fake the moon landing? Is it about this? Is it really about the Illuminati? Is he Was he assassinated because he made this movie? And I do think Kubrick, he had a conspiratorial vision to the extent that he thought the real conspiracy was the human mind itself, right? Uh, mm -hmm. It's that all of history and every history in the collective sense and history in the individual sense that every person is steered by forces they don't understand. That's kind of like the running theme. And it's present in Eyes Wide Shut. And it's it's probably the most hopeful of his films, precisely for the reason you 
said at the beginning, which is that at the end, they come to some kind of agreement about how to live in such a world, some kind of contract which combines two words, love and fuck, that accepts that duality as being somehow an irreconcilable but also inevitable fact that we have to just live with. Um, Mm -hmm. that, That love always rides on fucking and fucking always is always involved in love. Like there's no, that's like that Eros Thanatos kind of thing. Which Um, is always something that for whatever reason, we don't want to hear that. No. We want our fucking to be fucking and our want our love to be love and never the twain shall meet somehow. I mean, and I'm sure there's lots of people who are, saying to themselves, well, that's not how I think. And I mean, all individual cases duly noted, but nevertheless, uh, if you are in the sort of Dan Savage liberalization of sexuality side of things, then you're going to have an ideological investment in the idea that fucking does not entail love or doesn't have to, can. Yeah. But, you know, no strings attached sex is something that you can choose to engage with that is an individual choice entirely in your hands to say, well, you know, but then at the same time, once you start down the path of fucking, you never know where it goes. There's no informed consent to getting your heart broken. You know, people don't want to hear that shit. And likewise, if you're if you have a much more staid, traditional sexual morality, you don't necessarily want to hear that fucking is the other side of making love and having a family and you know. yeah the idea that every loving is already a fucking and every fucking is already a loving is very uncomfortable as a notion not only are they uh do they interpenetrate so to speak but they are actually just sides of the same thing they're like they're all eros and to live in the a wakeful state like Alice proposes at the end, is to live in both those worlds at once, to accept both sides of, of Eros. And I guess I just thought of something. When it's when that headline, lucky to be alive, might not be referring to luck at all. It might just be combining love and fuck into one word. Lucky. That's what you need to be. <laughs> <laughs> to be alive, you need to be lucky. You need to come to terms with loving and fucking as two sides of the same thing. That's the whole pan symbol right hillman wrote a great book on the god pan where he gets into this stuff that that little feeling of love that infatuation that love of another is always always reaching i'm talking about erotic love obviously always reaches down to a kind of like a kind of violence a kind of um, appropriation a capture or something that we relate to fucking but we don't live in that world we live in a somnambulistic pantomime of that world we're we're constantly channeling those forces but we're not conscious of it there's a decadent painter gustave moreau 19th century painter who really focused on strong mythical images you know like he did a a beautiful painting of salome pointing at the head of john the baptist after she requests that it be severed for her He, he made paintings of the sphinx and all kinds of mythical figures he's one of the great symbolists he had a theory of art of what makes good art, which I think applies to Kubrick's films, in particular to Eyes Wide Shut. According to Moreau, there were two key principles that he kind of took from Baudelaire, in a way. The beauty of inertia and the necessity of richness. That's how he called it. The beauty of inertia is what he found in the great paintings of the Renaissance that he loved and the sculptures, where the characters are engaged, they're swept up by these deep forces And the characters themselves, as human beings, look like they're sleepwalking. The way he put it was, all these figures seem frozen in an ideal somnambulistic gesture. They are unconscious of the movements they execute, absorbed in reverie to the point of seeming to be swept towards other worlds. I love that. That, Mm. I get that feeling watching Kubrick. The characters are always, there's more to them than they know. We can see that. We can see that, but we don't have any better clue than they do as to what those forces are. Those forces are not something we can translate into easy concepts. And then the other principle, which I also see in Kubrick, and that's exactly what you were talking about, about how he uh, saturates his films with semiotic information, like just everything means something. This, This is actually a quote from Baudelaire, which delineates this principle. Baudelaire wrote, Just as a dream is set in a colorful atmosphere all its own, so a conception turned into a composition, needs to move in a colored milieu that is specific to it. 
There is always a particular tone attributed to one part of the painting that becomes the key to the others. All the characters, their relative positions, the landscape or interior that serves as their background or horizon, their clothes, everything, in short, must serve to illuminate the general idea and carry its original color, its livery, so to speak. A good painting, faithful and equal to the dream that gave it birth, must be produced as a world. So these two principles, I just find they're very present in Kubrick's films, I think give us a clue as to why his humans, people have said he's unemotional or cold or aloof, but what he's doing, his films are actually filled with emotion, but he's not buying into the emotion. He's showing us emotions, yeah. emotions as, as the expressions of these obscure forces that are the real governing powers of our lives and of history. That's great. I think that's a really important insight. You know, all the stuff we've been talking about for the last half hour or so reminds me of an essay by William Burroughs called On Coincidence. It's a great essay, and he's making a point, basically, that the magical world, the magical universe, as he calls it, is a universe of signs that connect to one another, or like always calls out to like. And he's pointing out that every fictional world, or at least every successful one, is that kind of a world. What a magician would experience is always happening to the characters in a fiction. Yeah. He writes, writers operate in the magical universe, and you will find the magical law that like attracts like often provides a keynote. The sinister clown in Death in Venice. The stories of John Cheever abound in such warnings of misfortune and death ignored by his compulsively extroverted and spiritually underprivileged wasps. And then, interestingly, he switches back from like talking about like representations or you know, artworks, what we might say is the make-believe world to the real world, the world that we get up and walk around in. He says, I gave my writing students various exercises designed to show how one incident produces a similar incident or encounter. You can call this process synchronicity, and you can observe it in action. Take a walk around the block. Come back and write down precisely what happened with particular attention to what you were thinking when you noticed a street sign, a passing car, or a stranger, or whatever caught your attention. You will observe that what you were thinking just before you saw the sign relates to the sign. The sign may even complete a sentence in your mind. You are getting messages. Everything is talking to you. You start seeing the same person over and over. Are you being followed? At this point, some students become paranoid. I tell them that, of course, they're getting messages. Your surroundings are your surroundings. They relate to you. I really love that quote. And when I was watching Eyes Wide Shut, I was like, oh, if I actually lived in this universe, it would be a completely magical universe where all these uncanny uh, coincidences or synchronicities are constantly popping off. So think about... Bill's nighttime walk after he and his wife have an argument and he's called out to the house of a patient who has just died and he sees the man's distraught daughter who's crying and trembling. And we're watching this scene playing out. And of course, if you don't know the film or anything about it, you're like, oh, well, of course she's upset because her dad just died. But no, actually, it turns out it's because she's secretly in love with this doctor and she convulsively confesses her love to him and it comes out of nowhere both for him and for us and then he goes outside and he encounters a prostitute and then later he's at a costume shop and the young daughter of the costume shop's owners is coming on to him and then of course the central episode of the film which is he ends up by this unlikely chain of events at this mask orgy all of these events revolving around sex, all popping off at once. And to me, watching this film, it has the feeling of dream or for that matter, the feeling of like existing in a magical universe where forces are being called into these strange conjunctions, into these strange geometrical arrays. I wrote once that... The patterns we find in artworks scaled up to human life and society become conspiracy. And that's kind of what's going on in this film. Yeah. Kubrick makes it unignorable. I would say, I, I think that's brilliant. I would say, though, that, um, or in addition to that, I would say that, that we all live in two worlds. 
I think that every human being lives in that magical universe. That's our actual native mode. It's everything we see, we interpret what it means. Everything is potential meaning. Something doesn't need to have meaning to be magical. It needs to have potential meaning because it's the potential. That's of meaning. right. It's, That's right. That's absolutely right. It's the potential of meaning that gives it aura. So we actually function magically all the time, except that we have another world in our heads and the kind of ersatz world that we inherit, a, pic, a world picture that we then think is the real world. And we think that's, that's right. the way we go. So that's right. That's why real realism, okay, like a real realism in film looks more dreamlike than uh, this ersatz reality that we believe is the case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and all the great, great films have a dreamlike quality because that's the world we actually live in, even if we're not conscious of it. Most of us aren't conscious of it, except if we suddenly become awake in the moment. You only know you're dreaming when you wake up in the dream, right? So all of a sudden, you're at a party and someone comes on to you. Some attractive stranger comes you, up. Yeah, some attractive stranger comes over. You start talking to them. Next thing you know, you're going somewhere with them. You're at an after-hours club, blah, blah, blah. Then you remember, oh, my God, I've got a partner at home waiting for me. What's That type of getting caught up in, in these are very charged occasions. We're talking about moments where passion comes in. And that's where you get really caught in the dream. That's where you really lose your, because it's not like you lose your sense of reason. It's just your reason is running along the, the ruts established by this passion. That, Like, for example, when Bill is with the prostitute and he gets a phone call from his wife, his reason is engaged in finding ways to get her out of the picture so he can continue following this completely irrational yeah. <laughs> uh, urge to, to fuck up his whole life. We live in this dream state. We're native to it. And artists are people who are kind of like, wise to that and who are able to present us the world as we really live it whether we're conscious of it or not that's the sense of revelation you get from watching a great movie like eyes wide shut it's almost like you're looking in a mirror in a way because you're seeing all these aspects of yourself and i remember i've watched this film many times over the years and every time i react to it differently right now i'm in a very different situation than I was when I last saw it. And I was seeing different things and I thought of it differently because this movie and others like it are kind of topographical maps of the psyche in a strange sense. They're giving us a picture of the dream that is life. And in this, in this film, there's a very literal attempt at the end in the dialogue to erase the imaginary boundary between logic and dream logic, real life and kind of an oniric, magical existence. You know, so I want to talk about something slightly different, which is the rap that Kubrick has as a formalistic director. And the complaints a lot of critics had of this film when it first came out that Kubrick is supposedly making a film about sex, but he's so lost in his empty formalistic games that he doesn't do justice to the subject. I believe that was a complaint that some critics had of this film when it first came out. But I would like to make an argument for formalism. I think the way people handle formalism in Kubrick's films, partly because it's something critics so routinely beat him up on, is to deny that it's there. They say, no, actually, his films are very human and, you know, not at all formalistic, blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. They're, to they're very formalistic, and that's not a bad thing. Exactly. I just think, I, I think that people need to grow the fuck up and, and recognize that what we're calling formalism is a totally valid ingredient. I'll tell you why I think it's valid, because that, to me, is the musical aspect of his films like Kubrick is a musical director all of my favorite films and all of my favorite directors 
are people who thought of film in very musical terms. So Gilo Ponacorvo, who did the film Battle of Algiers, which was one of my all-time favorite movies, was explicitly interested in creating a film that was sort of musical in its fundamental formal constitution. David Lynch is the same way, and David Lynch is the one director who I'm really a hardcore fan of. I think Hitchcock was a musical director, and when, and and I think that Kubrick is a musical director. And when I say musical, sometimes that can manifest as having a particular sensitivity to good musical cues. And so, you know, Kubrick has exquisite musical taste for the pieces of music that he chooses for his film. So, you know, using the Blue Danube Waltz to show us the slowly rotating space station. We talked about that in uh, our first music episode, you know, and so we talk about how that works. And it's such a, a stroke of genius. His use of Bartok's music for strings, percussion, and Celeste in The Shining is fucking brilliant. But that's not why I'm calling him a musical director. It's because to me, and this is something that has been commented upon very often, that music has, it can have all kinds of content. It can be about all kinds of things. You can have a song like Joker Man. We talked about Joker Man last time we were recording. It could be about Christ and the devil, or it could be, you know, whatever. You know, it can have a subject by virtue of its text, if it's a song. It can have a subject by virtue of its program, if it's a piece like the Mephisto Waltz. But it doesn't have to have that. It can just be melody, harmony, rhythm. Just pure formal components. And there's a way of listening to music in uh, the history of aesthetics. It's called absolute music, and this has its own history. But a way of listening to music where form and content are one and the same, where the form is the content, where there's no way to talk about what the piece of music is quote-unquote about without talking about the arrangement of pitches in space and time. And if you take that same very abstract approach to art, it seems chilly to a lot of people because then you're no longer expressing something. If you talk about art as expression, well, I'm going to express a poetic image that I have in oh, my soul. I, 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 I wouldn't use the word express, but yes, I agree. I know what you're saying. I would use the word communicate. Because okay, I have sure. this beef about, uh, not this beef, but this thing about expression versus communication. Uh, I think formalism is very expressive, but does not communicate. Right. right. That, and that's kind of where I'm going. Yeah. Uh, that formalism is expressive without being communicative. That's actually a perfect way of putting it. So one formal element of Eyes Wide Shut is lights, either white lights or colored lights in like an array on a wall or some kind of planar surface. Like like uh, curtains of white light or, right. or a kind of chaotic arrangements of colored lights. And always the same yes. tones come back in every room. Everybody's got the same right. Christmas tree and all that. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that exactly. Ri- that, yeah, that rhythm. And so there's a formal, there's a rhythm set up by the repetition of a visual motif. So when we go to that party at the beginning where there's that uh, Mephistophelian Eastern European, I guess a businessman or something who's trying to seduce Alice, at that party, the dominant visual motif is walls covered with these crystalline white lights that are hung in chains, like in strings down the wall. And that's a visual motif that really popped to me. And you just see it again and again. The, the repetition of this visual motif creates a rhythm. And you say, well, what's the meaning of it? And if we want to get deep into our reptilian Illuminati conspiracies, I'm sure we could come up with a meaning for it. But the meaning doesn't have to be anything we could convey in propositional language. It could be simply the emotion or the mood that comes from the rhythm that it sets up, the patterns of similarity and variation, these very formal operations. And this, to me, is a fundamentally musical thing. This is what, to me, makes Kubrick a musical director on a level that goes beyond his great choices of musical cues. I think you're absolutely right. And so repetition is kind of the key element in rhythm. Uh, Rhythm always involves repetition. Repetition is very strange because repetition in a film, in a representational, let's say, context, where you're or a narrative context, repetition cannot do otherwise than 
call for interpretation. Why, why that again? Why is that curtain of white light in the costume shop? Oh, yeah. wait, that Luciferian figure said that Ziegler had a, a collection of bronzes upstairs, a collection of statues, and we're in the costume shop and there are all these statues. And, right. and the guy, Millich, the owner of the costume shop, walks in and points at the, at the mannequins and says, like life, eh? Like life. Oh, okay. He's telling us. Oh, good catch. Yeah, nice. Well, what's he telling us? He's telling us that, oh, is he saying humans are just mannequins and they have different costumes that determine their roles? Okay, well, that's one interpretation. You could have other interpretations. The point is that repetition calls for interpretation because repetition, as Deleuze pointed out, is never about sameness. Repetition is always about difference. And that's what we do in, the, in that second ersatz world we live in, is we take every repetition and re- we reduce it to recurrence of the same. Whereas yes. what's, what in the magical sense, repetition is the expression of difference itself. The fact that yep. lightning strikes twice in the same place, it's not the second time is not the same as the first because by virtue of being second, it must mean something. Yes. And then third, it must mean something. So in art, repetition is the expression of difference. But what the critics don't like about people like Kubrick is that they're doing that, whereas what critics like, or you know, bad critics, is that they want recurrence of the same. Oh, he's taking this from Hitchcock. He's doing this. He's telling us about the triumph of good over evil. He's, you know, like the recurrence of the same, the reaffirmation of the zeitgeist of doxa, of opinion, that we can then fit into our cultural discourse and just accept as part of the heritage of this particular art form and what it teaches us about being human and being this and being that whereas the real art i would argue or the the more the more visionary art let's say is always doing the opposite showing us that we don't okay it's about the the triumph of good over evil but we don't know what good is we don't know what evil is anymore because every repetition of something is unique so every repetition of the good is going to show us something new about the good that we didn't know. And every repetition of evil is going to be somehow different from every other one. Like that's the magical place where art happens. And I'll, I would argue where, and I think we agree on this, where life happens. Life in the, yeah. in the deepest sense of the word. You know, the, the life you live if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah. It's cool also how... Kubrick is using musical forms also to set off like cinematic forms. There's also that kind of musicality. So when we did our show on the Ligeti, Musica Ricciacata, the second movement of which is used abundantly in Eyes Wide Shut, we had a conversation about the piece of music itself. And at that point, I hadn't seen the film. If memory serves, I think I spent a certain amount of time in talking about that piece, talking about this alternation between an E-sharp and an F-sharp, this half-step, semitonal alternation. It's only three pitches in the whole piece, an E-sharp, an F-sharp, and a G. And when the G comes in, it's a high pitch. It's higher than what we've heard. And the score directs the pianist to form his hand into almost like, like a wedge like the beak of a bird of prey, you know, this hard wedge so that you smack the shit out of that key. It has a penetrating percussive force to it. That moment feels like a violent breakthrough of something. That whatever we've been locked into in this sort of like almost mechanical oscillation between E-sharp and F-sharp, that stasis, that logjam has is broken through brutally by the appearance of this third pitch. What's interesting to me, every time that G appears in Eyes Wide Shut is synced to some moment of revelation. Yeah. Like Tom Cruise's character, Bill, uh, being led to this circle of judgment when he's been found out. And then later on, that G appears like at a moment where he's walking around the deserted streets in Greenwich Village, stops at a newspaper stand by a newspaper, looks up and sees that trench-coated figure standing about a block away, just staring at him. That's when you hear the G. Yeah. And then later when he comes home late at night, he's returned his costume to the costumer, but 
somehow unaccountably the mask has gone missing so he's just paid for the replacement and he comes home he sees his wife sleeping and he sees the mask the missing mask lying there next to her on bed and that's the moment that we hear the g in a sense you can say well that's obvious right well yeah okay fine i mean at the same time he is taking something fundamental to this piece of music and he is finding parallel structures in the film and I don't want to say that it's simply like, oh, the music is accompanying the image. And that's good music to give us the mood of the image, acting as if the image is primary and the music is secondary. No, the formal operations of the music and the formal operations of the film are like laminated onto one another. Right. They're, they're, they're glued firmly together. They're moving in parallel. Yeah, they're like... Uh, they're like There's the, no primary and secondary. They're like the serpents in a caduceus. They're intertwined. And they're yeah, playing nice. together. And yeah, no, that's that's a great point. And what's interesting is that that G occurs when consciousness intrudes. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah, because one thing I love about Kubrick is that I think in every Kubrick film, there is one conscious character. And then you can have characters that have moments of consciousness and then they sink back into that somnambulistic unconscious mode. I wrote an essay once about Kubrick where I track this... I call it the star child from film to film. So obviously the moment of consciousness in 2001, the only moment of real consciousness where consciousness comes into being is at the very end where the star child turns and, and looks at the camera. So the star child rotates and then gazes at the camera. And then not only does the star child come to consciousness, but the viewer comes to consciousness because you can't, when someone looks at you, on the screen you can't help but remember that you're a person sitting watching a film so he ends with that in clockwork orange the conscious character is alex who uh, his name resembles alice i think for good reason hmm. um so 2001 ends with the fetus looking at the camera with eyes wide open then the first shot of clockwork orange is alex looking at the camera with eyes wide open hmm. well, what are we being told I think we're being told that Alex is the star child come back to earth. And then we're following what happens to that conscious mind in a world of unconsciousness. It's not all good. And then you can track this character from film to film, like private Joker in full metal jacket. And finally, Alice in eyes wide shut. She's the one who's aware that something's going on. You can see this in the beginning when they went to oh, the party. Yeah. They flirted. Then they start to make out in front of her mirror. And then you can see her looking off. Yeah. And you can see she has seen something. And he doesn't want to see it. And then he'll have to, as he says himself later when he gets the call, he says, I'm going to have to go over there and show my face. <laughs> oh, he, yeah. he will literally have to show his face later to the Illuminati or whatever. So... There's this um, this uh, interesting exploration of what it means to be conscious in Kubrick. And he really sees consciousness in a, in a different way. To be conscious means to be aware of the forces that govern you. It's not to be in charge of yourself. It's not to be the prime motor of your own agency. It's to come to the awareness that forces move through you and then that's what you are. I think that's an important notion that's particularly significant today as neuroscience and all kinds of control schemes are basically convincing us that we have no real free agency. Kubrick's about waking up in a dream. And I think that's why that meh I said at the beginning isn't really uh, warranted at the end because at the end of the film, yeah, they've woken up to the fact that the world is unjust, that people get killed, because obviously... It's all true what happened. That woman was killed by those crazy... He even says it. He says, remember at the end where Bill is questioning him? So Sidney Pollock's character offers Bill an easy out. He's like, suppose I told you that everything you saw at the party, the woman who offered herself a sacrifice to save you and all that stuff, all that was a charade. And then Bill's like, can you tell me what kind of charade ends up with someone turning up dead because the woman died? And then Ziegler responds with, well, okay, cut the bullshit. You know, this this fantasy, this sacrifice, phony sacrifice fantasy you've been jerking off to, it was all staged. That girl was just fine when they took her home. She got her brains fucked out. In other words, what he's saying is the only thing that we did to that woman, we didn't murder her in a ritualistically. We fucked her brains out 
and we brought her home and then she OD'd. How is that different from an outright murder? So Bill and Alice are aware of that reality, but they choose to live in that consciousness. They can't change it, but you can live in that awareness of what's going on around you and what's going on inside yourself. And maybe that's the best you can hope for. There's definitely in Kubrick, I think, in this film and others, a, a real challenge to that liberal notion that we are all rational agents. I think that that's obvious. But I think he's trying to work out through the films you know, ways of coping or dealing with that. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>